0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Editor Candice Keer, joined by staff writer Jane McGrath. Hey there, Candice. Hi, Jane. Today we have a topic that... Doesn't come from too far back in the annals of American history, and it's a pretty important topic to discuss because it's a mystery that's been unsolved for decades now. And yeah, a pretty controversial one at that, too. Definitely. And what's so interesting about this is that there's new evidence that even emerged a couple of years ago that threatens to change the course of how we conceive of this event. And what I'm referring to, rather mysteriously, is what really happened at Kent State. Kent State is actually a university in Ohio, um, the town of Kent.
2: You probably have heard it, or it rings a bell, because of this uh, tragedy that happened in 1970 and that happened on May 4th and it had to do with an anti-war protest and as you probably know the Vietnam War was going on at this time and uh, the Americans were
1: involved in it and it was very very controversial Uh, It was was an incredibly unpopular war, and one of the reasons that Richard Nixon had been elected to the presidency was because he'd made the promise to get the American troops out of the war. Right. He
2: promised Vietnamization, which was basically the idea that he was going to transfer the battle duty, the combat duty, from American soldiers to the Vietnamese themselves. And so that was one of the reasons why he was elected president. He was campaigning for this, but he sort of seemed to stab people in the back or or go back on this promise when he announced on April 30th, 1970, that he
1: was sending U.S. troops into Cambodia. And this really took people by surprise. They didn't understand the motive behind it. And the official motive that Nixon gave when he made the announcement on national television and radio was that there were Viet Cong headquarters in Cambodia. And by infiltrating the headquarters, they'd eventually be able to take down the Viet Cong. So by, I guess, a, a military and governmental perspective, the maneuver made sense. But to the American people who felt they'd been duped, it was a real slap in the face. Right. It seemed like he was escalating the war rather than um pulling out of it,
2: which people wanted to see, especially college kids around the country. Mm-hmm. And they were one of the most active anti-war protesters at this time. And so the next day, which would have been Friday, May 1st, uh, students in campuses all around the country, not just Kent, were staging Anti-war protests, uh, very standard thing, and very understandable because this happened. This is the day after the announcement, and in Kent, the students staged a protest in which they buried, they symbolically buried the U.S. Constitution, and it was it was very standard. You know, Kent was not unlike many other campuses.
1: And another thing they did was plan to convene again on Monday, May 4th at noon for another rally. And Friday night, as you can imagine, the semester is sort of winding down. It's getting close to summer. Students go out, as usual, to the bars, and they're intermingling with townspeople from Kent. And the scene just escalates because anti-war sentiment is running high and things get a little bit out of control. Yeah, these crowds start building
2: bonfires in the streets, and the bottles are thrown at cop cars, and it just just sort of increasingly gets more and more tense and, and rowdy. And I don't know, coming from, I went to University of Maryland, and this doesn't seem completely out of the ordinary. I mean, we have a <laughs> we win a championship, and the the kids build uh, bonfires, you know, but it really um, made the officials of the
1: uh, town of Kent. Uh, very nervous. And, Definitely. And yeah. the protesters were having verbal conflicts and physical conflicts with the police. And so all the Kent police were out that night. Police were called in from surrounding towns and cities. And all the, the, the county's officials came out, too, just to, you know, show their faces and help quell the crowds and even eventually help disperse the crowds. And things really got out of control and mayhem really broke loose when the mayor of Kent Closed all the bars. Yeah. And what a what a bad move in <laughs> retrospect because people are being rowdy, but you can imagine that there is still a good number of people inside the bars and having their beers and carrying on as usual. But you close all the bars, you move all of those people into the streets, they've all been drinking mayhem. What were you thinking? Yeah,
2: I think he had good intentions because you can understand how the presence of the bars made, made the crowds more rowdy after they were drinking,
1: but to close them during the night just made things worse. It really did. And so in a bit of desperation, he called Governor James Rhodes. And those two wouldn't conspire quite yet. But the next day, they reached a decision that ultimately culminated in the tragic shootings at Kent State. But that night, the crowd was dispersed with tear gas, and things were were calm. It was the calm before the storm.
2: Yeah, yeah. The next day, Saturday, May 2nd, we're talking about now, Satram, the mayor, was still nervous about what happened the night before, but also he was hearing rumors and supposedly threats against local businessmen. This made him even more nervous, and so he called the governor, James Rhodes, as you mentioned. And at about 5 that evening, Saturday, he he asked the governor to send the National Guard
1: to Kent. And at 10 p.m., the Ohio National Guard arrived, and they came into a rather dramatic scene on the Kent State campus. Someone, we to this day don't know who, was burning down the ROTC building there. Yeah, well, there, there
2: was a big crowd around the ROTC building and, and the crowd was sort of cheering on the, the blaze, but, you know, we still haven't found out who exactly lit it. Some, some students were, uh, wrongly accused of, of starting the fire. And so, yeah, we still don't know. But we do know that many, po- uh, protesters actually cut fire hoses, which effectively prevented firemen from from putting out the blaze when they did arrive on the scene.
1: And so that night, there were arrests made and more tear gas and just pandemonium for for a good while. Yeah, the guards
2: were able to disperse them when
1: they arrived, but the blaze had already been set, the damage had already been done. Exactly. And so by Sunday, May 3rd, um, according to your reports, it was a pretty nice day in Kent, Ohio. The sun was out, it was springtime, and even though the guardsmen were there, you know, they didn't really dampen spirits that much. Students were actually having conversations with them. They were talking, they were conversing, and uh, things were going okay until Governor Rhodes showed up in Kent. And the things he said just added fuel to a, a fire that had been, you know, burning out. He essentially threatened to get a court order putting the state in a state of emergency and No one actually said the words, but it was assumed that martial law had been declared. And understanding falsely that martial law was in effect, all rallies were were banned, including the one that had been planned for noon the next day, Mm -hmm. Monday, May 4th, and tensions spiked again. Yeah, and one important thing also that Rhodes did on Sunday
2: was during a press conference, he actually called these violent protesters the worst type of people that we harbor in America, which... (laughs) A very uncharitable
1: remark and not very diplomatic for the time. I'm sure it just added fuel to the fire. Exactly. So university officials tried to get the word out to all the Kent State students, don't conduct the rally, please don't meet on the commons, let's just scrap this whole idea. They went so far as to print about, I think... Uh, Couple thousand. Yeah, what, 12,000. 12,000. So a lot flyers. of thousand, yeah. flyers yeah. telling students don't hold this rally. And the students felt on the whole that it was their, their right, you know, constitutionally to mm-hmm. have this rally and to speak what was on their minds. And so by 11 a.m., a couple thousand had already started congregating. And then by noon, there were 3,000. And there's a report that was put together by, um, two men affiliated with Kent State University, and that is uh, Jerry Lewis and Thomas R. Hensley. And they attempt to break down the numbers to give us a better idea of how many people in the crowd were actually protesters, demonstrators, agitators, and spectators. And they estimate that of the 3,000... 500 were active demonstrators. About 1,000 were on the sidelines cheering them on. And then around the periphery, you had about 1,500 more who were speculating. And I would presume also that that number includes people who were passing by on their way to different sites around campus. Because yeah. as we'll see, mm-hmm. one of the, uh, the victims of the shootings was just a passerby.
2: Right. So, you have this situation where, um, you have about a thousand guardsmen and three thousand students who are gathered around, some actively protesting, some just watching. So, you have, uh, one of the generals in the, um, National Guard General, Robert Canterbury, and he tried to disperse the crowd. He, he tried with a bullhorn saying, like, go home. Uh, rallies are banned, and he finally got around. He was driven around in a Jeep around the commons trying to get people to leave. Finally, he ordered his men to load their weapons and start dispersing tear gas.
1: And we should mention that their weapons were M1 rifles. Mm. And it's pretty intimidating, just from all accounts. Imagine you're a bystander. You're one of the crowd of 3,000 civilians looking on. To see men holding these weapons... And you know that they're loaded, even if they're locked. What a scary thought. But conversely, from the guardsman's point of view, they were outnumbered by about, what, two to one? Seems like that, yeah. And so that's why there's so much controversy today, as we'll see later in the debate. Mm. Who was more frightened?
2: Yeah, well, I think it's interesting to know it's a good point. But on the other hand, you if I were a spectator... Or a protester, I really wouldn't expect the guard to even think about shooting into the crowd, you know. Well, and I think that's yeah. what gave them a lot of the, the, I don't know what the word is, but courage, or just sort of, you know, the
1: gall to to challenge the 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 national guard. And by challenge, we should be explicit and say that they were hurling insults, they were throwing rocks, right? They were not being complacent, people in a crowd. And please don't mistake what I'm saying. I'm not trying to defend. Either side here, I'm presenting the facts, but you should know that people weren't standing by. They were actively engaging with the guards. You know, the guards had their weapons loaded, they were dispersing the tear gas, and the crowd was fighting back. Right. And so
2: when the tear gas uh, was dispersed, this pushed protesters past the commons area and up and over a, a hill. Um, and on the other side, you had this practice football field in a, in a parking lot. And so the crowd was pushed back to that that area. And when the guardsmen got there, they sort of realized that they were kind
1: of trapped yes. because the field was was um, enclosed by a fence. Right. And at that point, the guard started uh, traipsing back up Blanket Hill. Mm-hmm. And when they got to the top of the hill, they turned around and out of the 70 plus guards present, 28 Fired. Yeah. And we should also note
2: that not all of these 28 who fired, fired into the crowd. Mm-hmm. Some or most of them, I should say, actually just shot up in the air or shot down the ground. Seems like they were trying to not harm anyone, but just warn right. the protesters. But for that wasn't sense. the
1: case for all of the guards. No. So for about 13 seconds, there were between 61 and 67 shots fired. And as a result, there were four deaths. We have Jeffrey Miller, who was shot from 270 feet away, and he was hit in the mouth. Allison Krause was 330 feet away, and she was shot in the left side. William Schroeder, 390 feet away, was shot in the back. And Sandy Shoyer, who was a student just passing by on her way to class, was shot at 390 feet away as well, and she was shot in the neck.
2: Yeah, and that's what makes it more tragic. I mean, it would have been tragic anyway, but the fact that some of the kids who, who were shot or wounded were not even involved. They, right. they didn't even want to engage in the protest,
1: and they, were, they became a victim of it. And nine wounded um, included Dean Kaler, who was permanently paralyzed from the shot. Uh, Donald McKenzie was the farthest away of any of the victims of the shootings at 750 feet. And another one of the students, Joseph Lewis, who was hit, he was actually hit while he was flipping off the guard with his middle finger. Oh, yeah. That's so. right. I remember reading about that. So panic basically
2: ensued. You know, like, I can't imagine how it would feel in the, the, the seconds, the moments after these shots were fired. But people believe, like you mentioned, Lewis and Hensley uh, write about this, and they were a great source for, for my research on this. They, they believe that things would have gotten worse, well, most definitely.
1: It, well, and if you listen to eyewitness accounts from Kent State that day, they say that everyone just hit the ground. You know, mm. shots are fired, you hit the ground. Yeah. And then people paused and stood back up, and you don't realize at first who's been shot. And then they start seeing people who aren't getting up, people okay. who are covered in blood. yeah. And especially in the parking lot, it became very obvious. You have blood pooling out of victims lying on the asphalt, um, Jeffrey Miller, one in particular.
2: Yeah. And so... I, at least after this, there was thought about even uh, provoking the guards further, and um, if it weren't for Glenn Frank, who was a professor there, and he happened to be acting as a faculty marshal, to keep the peace during the protest, he started... uh pleading with the crowd just to just, you know, disperse and and let it go and, and don't provoke the right. guards any
1: more. And, and you can actually yeah. hear clips of what he said or people recounting his words, and this is strictly paraphrasing, but he was very impassionately saying things like, if you've never listened to any directions in your life at all, you know, for heaven's sake, listen to this now.
2: Yeah. It's kind don't of heart, react. heart-wrenching, and, and thank goodness he was there to say that, because a lot of people um credit him for saving some lives that day this news hit the national scene and everyone was basically in shock um a lot of people were disappointed with the response they got from the nixon administration mm-hmm. uh nixon himself said that m- merely when dissent
1: turns to violence it invites tragedy it struck a lot of people as cold when he said that and he later remarked that those few days after kent were among the darkest of my presidency And I can guess so, if you're (laughs) showing such a lukewarm sentiments is what you come into, Jane. Yeah, it's interesting, actually. I remember reading um, an account of how
2: one of the most bizarre things of Nixon's presidency is in the days following Kent he actually left the White House very early in the wee hours of the morning uh, with, I think, no security or maybe just very little security, and he um, engaged in conversation with some protesters who were sitting on the steps of a monument or some such, and he told them, like, I know you probably hate me, you think I'm a jerk, he, he used a little more vulgar language than I did, but he tried to sort of engage with the generation. But you can see the disconnect between the younger college generation at this time and and Nixon's generation. It's sort
1: of they, they, they didn't know how to connect with each other. Definitely not. And I can imagine that that sort of generational gap would have made it incredibly difficult to understand the sentiments of the crowd and reconcile those with the duty of the National Guard. And that became a huge debate. And trying to settle this case in court was a nightmare, and it wasn't settled, really, until January 1979. And eventually the court settled with $675,000 to the wounded and the families of the killed students. And the National Guard never even issued an apology. They only made a statement of regret.
2: Yeah, they wanted to clarify, I think, that... uh That it was not an apology because they didn't because that would make it look like they were to blame, which they didn't want to make. They 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 testified in these trials that they shot because they felt that their lives were in danger, and a lot of people disagree with that. They think that they made up this excuse, and that you know there are some even conspiracy theories that the troops when they originally uh, came down past the hill into the football field that they that these these troops who fired had um, conspired to when they planned ahead, sort of a premeditated murder situation where they, they said, Hey, when we get back up to that hill we're gonna turn around and fire which would indicate that they weren't um they didn't feel like their lives were in danger so much as they just wanted to shoot, you know, they wanted to end this this rally.
1: Right. And other eyewitness accounts say that they were very angry. I mean they were obviously caught in the middle of a, a student protest that Arguably, they weren't prepared to handle. I mean, the National Guard is obviously prepared for certain types of situations, but a student protest may have been one that they weren't trained to to handle, or at least efficiently or properly. Yeah, and what's what I find most interesting about the guards themselves is that a lot
2: of sources bring up the fact that these guards were, uh, most of them not much older than the college kids that they were they were shooting into, you know, the and that the, would explain the camaraderie on Sunday. When that's they were true. About and that's talking. true, and also the fact that many of these many of these kids in the guard, they had entered the guard because they wanted to dodge the draft themselves. So you can mm-hmm. see that maybe they had similar sentiment as the
1: protesters, as as draft dodgers. Well, after after the uh, the shootings, essentially, life stopped on the university. And it was closed, like many universities around the country. Uh, Kent State was closed for six weeks, and it didn't reopen until the summer. But in order to ensure uh, normalcy and the proper closure of the semester, professors and students completed their coursework through mail, and they would have meetings in town and, um, I believe, in the... Uh, In the Jerry Lewis and Thomas Hensley report, they describe one student who was uh, in the sciences who helped make videos of different experiments in laboratories and mailed them out to his his, um, fellow students. So people were obviously trying to make this work.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: And... And other campuses
2: were closed around the country, too. It it, it partly had to do with with student strikes, which forced Mm -hmm. them to close, and also just they had to close or they felt it was was the right thing to do. I I was talking to my dad about it, and he was actually attending Georgetown at this time, and he remembers when Georgetown uh, campus shut down for the rest of the year. But, I mean... there wasn't a whole lot left of the semester. You you mentioned six weeks or so. I mean, we're thinking May. It's pretty late in the semester, but it it did disrupt the entire country in that way.
1: It really did. And what's interesting, I alluded earlier in the podcast to the fact that there's evidence now that threatens to shake up the, the verdict of the case as we know it. And I'm not quite sure what became of this, but back in May of 2007, a story broke on NPR, that one of the wounded victims, Alan Canfora, had new evidence that he wanted to see investigated. And the day of the rally, there was a student who had a microphone perched on the windowsill of his dorm room, and he recorded everything that happened on a reel-to-reel tape. And not until recently, with improved technology standards and audio, was anyone able to convert that into a better sounding clip. Yeah. And it had been stored in the archives at Yale for many, many years since then. And Canfora gave an eyewitness account that he heard someone command the shots, which obviously would have you know made this case very different. Because right. people say, we don't know why the guard shot. Well, if someone told them to shoot, well, there's you know yeah. the evidence right there. And if you listen very carefully to the tape, and you can, if you do search for it online, you can hear it. You can sort of make out the words right here, get set, point, and fire. Mm -hmm. But it's very faint. So I'm not quite sure if this is maybe a matter of wanting to hear something that's not really there. Maybe... And maybe, it w- do
2: do they know that it would have been an official who said that? Or and maybe it was just one of these? That's a good point, too, yeah. because
1: Canterbury was the officer of highest rank among the National Guard. But is there evidence to point toward the fact that he would have said it, that he would have given the order? Yeah, because I remember reading that one of the officials after the, the shootings, one of the officials came running across saying, stop firing, stop firing. Right, and it could be that maybe an order got handed down incorrectly yeah. to a small portion of the number of guards. And that would have explained why. Only 20-something out of 70-something even shot. That's true. So it's something that I don't really know a lot about except for this story, and I'm not sure if the case has been reopened for investigation. But yeah. One thing that struck me when I began doing research on Kent State
2: was – the fact that it sounded really similar to another historical situation that happened centuries beforehand, having to do with the Boston Massacre. Mm-hmm. And it, it really struck a chord with me that there was this situation where you have armed troops and angry citizens uh, confronting each other, and there was sort of panic and confusion going on, and, and somehow a, fire, uh, a, a shot was fired, and it just escalated after that. And I actually found a scholarly article about it that describes the similarities and the differences, and it's really fascinating. So it's interesting to think about these situations and how there are so much better ways to handle them and how, you know, we need to avoid a repeat of such episodes.
1: Exactly. And it really is our right as citizens to speak out against things. You know, we we have that granted to us by the Constitution. We have freedom of speech. We can protest. Right. And obviously there are peaceful ways to do it,
2: more radical ways to do it. And yeah, and it's complicated by the fact that it needs to be peaceful protest. And were the the um, protesters being peaceful? Uh, well, you know, you could argue, well, with the burning down of the RTC building, exactly. maybe
1: not. I don't know. And that's a question that in the report from Lewis and Hensley they raise they they sort of leave their summary of of the Kent State shootings with a whole list of questions. And some of the ones that really stood out to me were how much of this action was sort of brought on by outside agitators, non-Kent State students. Yeah. What were the townspeople doing to yeah. get the crowds around? And the confusion up? of the martial law as well. Exactly. Right. Was martial law declared? Was it not? Mm-hmm. Who actually banned the rally? Didn't anyone have a right to ban the rally? And in respect to the outside agitators coming in, um, one of the most famous images from Kent State shootings, a photograph taken by a uh, photography student, John Philo. That day of um, young Mary Vecchio leaning over the body of Jeffrey Miller, her hands are you know at her sides and her face is just contorted in anguish. Uh, Mary Vecchio wasn't a Kent State student; she was a fourteen-year-old runaway who just happened to be there. And this image is so iconic, and it's really I, I think how many of us remember. Kent State, yeah, and just the pandemonium and the very chaos memorable the tragedy picture. It's so of heart-wrenching, yeah. Exactly, and if you haven't seen it, again, do a search for it. But Mary Vecchio later said that she'd suffered because of the photo, and that's a direct quote. She said that she had suffered because of it, and I'm not quite sure what that means.
2: Yeah. I don't know what to, maybe maybe it would indicate that uh she got a lot of attention because of it, and you know she was always attached with
1: the with this tragedy i I guess that's a good point. the yeah. idea of if you witness an event like that, of course it's always going to be with you, it's always going to be something you remember, but eventually you overcome tragedy by coping with it in certain ways and if if your face is so strongly mm-hmm. attached to this moment, you can't really ever get over it, can yeah. you?
2: Yeah, that but, must be
1: hard. And that's why it's so important to remember Kent State and remember it not just from the perspective of of the actual events that occurred, but from the perspective of history. As you mentioned, Jane, bringing it into context with other events mm, where yeah. where mob behavior resulted and culminated in, in tragedy. Yeah. When you have someone who's armed against a protester who's not in proper ways to speak out against what you deem injustices in the world. Mm-hmm. So. And as you mentioned, you know, news is still sort
2: of mulling and, and coming out about this, this tragedy with the, with the release of that audio. So if there's any, um, anything in the news about Kent State, you can bet that we'll be talking about it on our blog, Stuff You Miss in History Class, on the website, how, howstuffworks.com. And Candace and I write on this blog every day and keep you up to date on things that are happening, things that interest us, and we,
1: we think will interest you too. And as always, if you have any comments or feedback for us, you can email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. And if you want to read more about Kent State, be sure to check out this article on com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at howstuffworks.com.